It says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is great as the fear that is your due. <clears throat> Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to your children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray one more time. Dear God, uh, many are, are, there are so many ways in which humanity persecutes each other and even your people. But God, I pray that we would never turn from your word because all of your words are true. They are all right and good and forever. God, the world may persecute itself without cause. So God, help us to have hearts that tremble at what you say. God, you grant peace, and it is great peace to those who listen to you and believe you and trust you. God, nothing can make them stumble. So God, we wait. We're waiting for your salvation, your deliverance, your rescue. God, I pray that we would follow your word, that we would obey it and trust it. All of our ways and all of our days are known to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, you can all be seated now. Psalm chapter 90 um, is, throughout church history, next to Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in the Bible. It's not the most famous psalm today. Most, it's been largely lost in our world. But if you, look, if you go back through the annals of church history, Psalm 90 is clearly number two next to Psalm chapter 23. Um, it, has have, it has great importance um, to answering the question, believe it or not, and it might be hard to see this at first, and hopefully by the end of the sermon you'll see 
what I mean, but it has great importance for answering the question of what the purpose of our lives is. Why are we here spinning around on this great blue ball that we call Earth? The purpose of life. You all might have heard of Douglas Adams. Anyone? No? No hands? Okay. Didn't think so. It's all right. How about the movie? Morgan has. Um, that doesn't surprise me. How about the movie, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Anyone hear of that? Really? Nobody? Okay. There's a book and then there's a movie. Okay. Douglas Adams humorously in his book aims to answer what he believes a ridiculous question to ask to begin with, and that is, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> um, in the book, there are, there's this group of people on this alien planet that want to know their purpose. So they build the supercomputer, and they program it to answer this question. And we read this. They name it Deep Thought. They say, oh, deep thought computer, the task we've designed you to perform is this. We want you to tell us, dun, 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 the answer. Wait, hold on. I need this one for this because this has an echo. All right. I can't get it out. All right, let, let's, let's try that again. Ready? Okay. We want you to tell us. Dun, 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 the answer. The answer? Said Deep Thought. The answer to what? Life, urged Fook. That's his name, Fook. The universe, said Lunkwell. Everything, they said in chorus. Tricky, he said finally. But can you do it? Yes, I can. But I'll have to think about it. Seven and a half million years later, <laughs> Fook and Longquell are long gone, but their descendants continue what they started, pursuing the computer for the great answer. We are the ones, seven and a half million years later, we are the ones who will hear, said Fook, the answer to the great question of life, the universe, said Longquell, and everything. There was a moment's expectant pause while panels slowly came to life on the front of the consoles and lights flashed on and off experimentally and settled down into this business-like pattern. Do you have an answer for you? Interrupted Deep Thought majestically. Yes, I have. And you're ready to give it to us? I am. Now? Now, said Deep Thought, though I don't think you're going to like it. We must know it now. You're really not going to like it, observed Deep Thought. Tell us. Wait, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, said Deep Thought. The answer to the great question. Yes. Of life, the universe, and everything said Deep Thought. Yes? Is? said Deep Thought and paused. Yes? Is? Yes? 42. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. 
42. I told you you weren't going to like the answer. Douglas Adams um, referred to himself. Um, obviously, he's a very funny guy, very comical, good writer. Made a movie, a um, couple of movies, actually, about his books. But Douglas Adams referred to himself. This is going to make sense to you in a moment. Why is the answer to the riddle to life? The answer is 42. Well, Douglas Adams referred to himself as a radical atheist. Um, Richard Dawkins, some of you may have heard of, um, wrote a book called The God Delusion, um, also uh, an, um, a very famous atheist, actually dedicated his book, The God Delusion, to um, Adams. Uh, philosophers call um, him, uh, refer to him as an atheistic existentialist. Now, I know that this is some heavy lifting, but hold on. Um, it's really not that all, all that complex. What this means is very simple. There is, because we believe that there is no God, it means that there is no prescriptive purpose to our lives. So in other words, there's nothing sort of programmed in us that defines our meaning. Right? There's no objective sort of being to look to to answer the question to why we're here. So as in the book, when we look for that, it's ridiculous. We end up getting answers that don't make sense. That was his worldview. But the Bible, in Psalm chapter 90, when it's answering this question of life, let me just remind you the word that it begins with, Lord. The riddle to the mystery of our existence and the purpose of our being is wrapped up outside of ourselves, not in some forest or the trees or the mountains, but the Lord. The Bible begins in Psalm 90 and in Genesis with the word God. And everything that follows that describes who we are, what satisfies us most is linked to that, to the beginning of our existence, which is God our maker. <clears throat> we don't create our own purpose. You see, for an atheistic existentialist, our purpose is not objective it's subjective in other words it's not something prescribed it's something that we decide for for ourselves so in other words who are you what do you want to be no one can tell you that right i do think by the way that there is somewhat of an element of truth to that we'll get to that in a moment but in theory the idea that we have no purpose and we create our own is that basic fundamental purpose it's very popular across college campuses all over our country, that we sort of decide why we live our lives, right? And no one can tell us otherwise. We are the beginning and ending of our own purpose. And that is basically the existential divide. The, in other words, the meaning of our lives, that's the divide in our culture. Either there's a God that made us and that gives us purpose, or we give ourselves purpose, and we decide what we want it to be. So there is no originating purpose. We're left to create it on our own. Now, like I said, I believe that, that both, that, that the one that is maybe technically the Christian worldview, there's an element of truth to it, but we'll get to that more in a second. And I want to demonstrate this through Psalm chapter 90. So now we turn. Um, if you've heard the psalm before, it's probably been at a funeral. Um, a lot of times this psalm, there are some verses that are often left out of the funerals, and, and, and it's usually the ones that start talking about God as being angry at sin. 
<laughs> That's, we don't like to think about that at funerals, so a lot of times people will just omit that part. But if you've heard this psalm, it's likely been at a funeral sar- service because it has this way of bringing comfort to many people on their, on their deathbeds or on their sickbeds or even for people that are losing someone that they love. It provokes them to reflect about time. In, in, the, in this uh, psalm alone, in, in chapter 90, there are references to days and years and morning and evening. It's sort of emphasizing the timelessness of God and the brevity of our own life. And that's the clue to the main concern of this psalm, to get us to think about the purpose of our time, of our life. It's the importance and purpose of our days and years. There was uh, one author, Dr. Miller, he said, in the sure knowledge of our death, what gives meaning to our time now is from the perspective of the moment where our life is at an end. Now, that might be a little complex or tricky to understand what he's saying, but let me say it in other words. If we could see this moment of our life from the perspective of who we will be on our deathbed, that would, that would add a lot to how we understand the purpose of the moment we're in now. You see? See, because I don't often live like that. I think about the next cheeseburger I'm going to eat. Right? I think about the, the next movie I want to go see with my wife. I don't think and live so deeply. I just sort of let each day pass into each other. Right? The psalm speaks profoundly to the question of the purpose of life, even by the way it's structured, the movements of the psalm. If we could make an outline of the psalm, in other words, even just the outline will show us the purpose of our lives as it's being described in Scripture. So the, the beginning is it begins to describe God. And then it moves to, like, human mortality and the brevity of our lives. And then, it, if you notice, it ends with prayer. Begins with God, moves to our mortality, and ends with prayer. And I believe that as we, if we look at this carefully, we will see why we exist, why God gave us life. And hopefully will give us the answer. <laughs> right? There is so much death and violence around us today. Isn't that true? Um, it's not new. You know, th- this sort of violence, it seems new to people that are young. Um, even people that are old are still maybe a little bit shocked by it. But if you've been around long enough, you saw it in the 90s and you saw it in the 60s, and you've seen this throughout church history, uh, I mean American history, violence and death and racism and riots and all of this is not true. Is, is, excuse me, it's not new. And it begs the question, what, what are we doing here? What's the point? Well, according to Psalm chapter 90, it, the, the purpose of our lives begins with God. The very first word in the Hebrew text of this psalm is Yahweh, Lord. And you know, almost in the Hebrew text, in the very first verse of the Bible, it's Yahweh. In the beginning, God, Right? The very first word of a psalm very much about the purpose of our life begins with the Lord, and that alone is telling us something about the meaning of our lives. It is wrapped up 
and who God is. You cannot know yourself without knowing who the Lord is, according to Scripture. The question of our purpose, the challenges that we face, the brevity of life, everything that follows, all of us, our emotions, our trials, our circumstances, we don't understand those things fully until we stop looking at them and look to our God, our Creator. We look outside ourselves, not inside. And that's where I think, by the way, that the, the Judeo-Christian view on purpose and meaning is correct. God is the origin of us. He is our Father in Scripture. So if you want to know you, you've got to know Him. If you want to know you, you've got to know Him. He is our origin. Our us, the very fact that we have an usness, there is an us, is wrapped up in Him. Because without Him, there is no us. So before, before we start tripping over ourselves, the problem of evil, the world, even the judgment of God, we need to first look at the God who made us. And our text talks about him. And it says some pretty awesome things about our God. Look at it. Lord, Yahweh, the name of God. You have been our dwelling place. Well, we can just stop there for a second and think about what that means. Everything that exists is the dwelling place of God. In other words, none of us would have life or breath or movement. There would be no trees or mountains unless it was for God's creative and sustaining power. Nothing exists outside of our God's creative power. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So, so there's this amazing thing that this psalm does. It forces us to stop looking at ourselves in a mirror because it wants us to look at ourselves in a mirror. Now, you can't see yourselves clearly in that mirror until you look at God. John Calvin said that in the, the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, if you, you cannot know yourself without knowing God, and you cannot know God without knowing yourself. And it's a profound statement. So the psalm forces us to stop looking at ourselves, our circumstances, and problems, and to look at God. And it says two things about him. He is timeless and he is good. The time of God is not our time. It forces us to kind of look back before the annals of history, before the generations, before the mountains were born, or brought forth the, you, O God, are, are from everlasting to everlasting. So before your great-grandpappy, before his great-grandpappy, and so on, the Lord has always been present. He is the dwelling place of creation. Does that make sense? So it's much like what, you know, what Paul said in the book of Acts, remember this? In him, we live and move and have our being. In God, we live and move and have our being. He was talking to people that were not Christians, that had, not faith, they had no faith in Jesus Christ, but they were not independent of God, even though they denied him. So they, their lives still depended on the creative power and sustaining power of God. In him, we live and move and have our being. So he is the dwelling place of all creation. And all of us are purposed in him and exist for him. 
So like I said, our, our text reminds us that God is two things. He is timeless, but he is good. He's timeless, but he's good. He is the source of life <clears throat> as it was meant to be, not as it is. And that is the context in which meaning is found in our lives. The God who brought the universe into existence, the God who was there before it came to be, and the God that will be there after it's gone, that God is our refuge. That God is our dwelling place. That God is our home, our meaning, our purpose. You want to be home with yourself? Then you need to go home with the Lord. We are here for him, and he is here for us. That is the overwhelming and overarching story and defined purpose of your life and God's creating you. Isn't that great? So self-discovery begins with God-discovery. Self-discovery begins with God-discovery and nurturing an affectionate relationship with him. You see, a lot of times we get bogged down with like, well, if I turn to God, then I can't do this or that because of these rules. How about not worry about that right now? And just get to know who God is. Because I guarantee you, when you start to get to know him, you'll start to realize that maybe there are some things that you sacrifice for your, for, for your relationship with God, but it's worth it. And it's better because you've gotten to know him. There is not one moment or microsecond of time when this whole universe has not been in the hands of God. There is no place that you can escape where God has is, is forgotten it. Or that place doesn't need it. Or him, rather. So God is the origin who is timeless and good. And now that our text moves to consider our own mortality. It introduces this interesting dimension in verses 3 through 10. And it gets a little dark. And as Americans, we don't really like to talk about this aspect of how the Bible describes our condition, and God's position. But it describes our lives as having bookends. There is a beginning and there is an ending, and that, first, is certain. There is nobody that is outside of the shortness of life. All of us certainly are mortal. True? None of us will escape death. Now, the older I get, I, I got to admit, I'm 40 now, and to young people that seems old, and to old people that seems young. So I know I'm, pro I'm right at the middle there where, you know, I still sort of live my life, though, as I'm, I'm not going to die. I said that to you earlier. I don't think about that. I think about the next cheeseburger I'm going to eat or the next project I'm going to do in my house, right? I don't think about the fact that I was not made for this earth. I was made for eternity and for relationship with God. But it is certain that I am going to one day pass away. But this text, even though I forget it, does not allow any of us to forget that our lives are short, that death comes, and that it is not an illusion. And what's more, our mortality, oh, and this is hard, our death is not an accident. I'm going to say something hard right now. God has purposed our death. God has, according to scripture, God has decided, willed us to die. Oh, and we say, oh, how horrible. 
I thought in the beginning was the life. And the life was the light of men. What's going on? Why? How is God the origin of life and death at the same time? You know what it says? You, Lord, turn people back to dust. You say, return to the dust, you mortals. You turn them back to dust. Not, well, you know, death, it's just meaningless. It's purpose. We hear that sometimes, right? It was so senseless. And sometimes when we think about how a person dies, I, I understand where that comes from. But there is no purposeless death. Our mortality is wrapped up in God's predetermined will, according to Scripture. In this text, it is God that limits our days, and it is God that sentences us to death. Why? Why does he do this? The answer, if you didn't like that, you're not going to like this. The answer is sin. The reason that God has purposed our death is because we have all sinned. Death for all of us is not an accident. It's not natural. It comes as a divine sentence towards our decision to live independently from life, who is God. So when we turn from him and we worship and serve another creature, we leave life and enter into death. It says in verse 7, We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, so that all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Oh, friends, you've got to deal with God, according to the Bible. If this means anything, it means that. We all got to deal with him. We all got to face him. God's anger in scripture, it's not a mood swing. He's not hangry, right? Like, it's not capricious or arbitrary. One scholar even noted, he said this, the one who is the ground of our being has created, a, created us for lives that manifest love and righteousness that continue the good purpose for which God has brought the universe into being and that the universal failure to live so places lives under the limitation and judgment of death. This is going to start to turn into good news. Okay? Death, even as harsh as this sounds, is a mercy. Let me explain. When we as a human race refuse to operate under the purpose of loving our God and our neighbor, right? The world, because of it, is turned upside down. And don't we see that every day? What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you think that we're loving each other when we, we stick our knee into the neck of someone for nine minutes? Do you think that we love each other when we throw bricks through the, through the window of a restaurant? 
or flip over a police car. You see, friends, death is a mercy for rejecting the love of God because it ends this madness. You see? God says the wages of sin is death, and we see that all around us. We might not like it. We might not like the sound of a God who, who is angry at this, but, but really? Are you, is that really true? Do you really want a God that's not angry at the, at the baloney that we see every day of our lives? That a God is just like, eh, whatever. No, we want a God of justice. We have hearts of justice. Why would we want a God any different? Of course he's mad. Of course he's angry. We shouldn't kill people because they're black. We shouldn't flip over cop cars who had nothing to do with it. We shouldn't kill each other. You're mad, aren't you? Well, so is God. And if you want a God that's not mad at sin, I don't know why. I can't explain that. You see, what we want is a God, a God that's mad at other people's sin, not mine. It gets better, though. Okay? I'm not mad at you. <laughs> the wrath of God is the... Walter Harrelson said this. The wrath of God is the clearest sign to a faithful and struggling com community that there is purpose in life. God's wrath is a constant and relentless pressure, a presence that warns and admonishes and requires that we secure wisdom so that it may be detected for the better. It says this in ver verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Imagine, friends, if the, these needless murders, these, these riots all around us, didn't bother us. That we, we were immune to, to the, the wrongness of injustice. Numb to riots and lootings and racism and murder. Imagine if, if God kind of left us numb to it when it happens. He doesn't do this. The fact that God has caused us to feel the sting of life outside of him shows you that your purpose is not to be outside of him so that you might repent and turn back to him. That what's wrong in your soul and what's wrong with this world is not that people have done some wrong things. It's that we as a world have worshipped another God. Um, I was listening to Zach um, yesterday. He said something really awesome. He said, um, um, why do you think um, that um, injustice, how did he say it? I'm messing it up now. He said, if you, if you have a wickedness tree, injustice is going to grow off it. Why, do, why are we surprised by injustices as they continually happen when all we have is a wickedness tree? It's just going to keep happening. It's got to be uprooted. We've got to surrender to the God of life. Do the, uh, do the tragedies of your world leave you angry and confused and scared? Oh, friend, let that show you that God in his love wants to rescue it, to bring it back home to himself. And if our purpose and therefore our joy is found in him, then the pain of being outside of him and the expectation of, of our own death is only there as, as a provocation to bring you back to the source of your life. The psalm doesn't end with a reflection on mortality 
or even on God, but it ends with prayer. And we can find more of our meaning in this. It gives us a handful of prayers. I'm going to shoot through these really fast, okay? The first prayer, it says, teach us to number our days. It's not just saying here, life is short, so live it to the fullest. It's not what it's saying. It's saying life is a gift. We are allotted time by God. Teach us to number our days. God has given us days to live our lives. And it causes us to reflect, am I living under the divine purpose to love God and neighbor with my time or not? Teach me to number my days. And this is where, by the way, I agree a little bit with Adams, I think his name was, about you, you do need to, to a degree, look inside yourself for your purpose. And here's what I mean. Because God has made us all different. God has gifted us all differently. So there is a basic and general purpose we have to love God and neighbor, but it lives itself out differently. Some of you are great builders, and some of you are great, great singers. Some of you are, are, are wonderful poets and teachers. So we love our neighbor differently, and that, that gets kind of drawn out in this. Teach us to number our days. In other words, do I know how God has built me, and am I using my days wisely with how God has gifted me? uniquely to each of us. The second thing he prays for, so teach us to number our days. God has given you a certain amount. That's the first one. God has given us time, and we got to reflect, how am I using it? Am I using it as a, a person whose purpose exists for the presence of God, or do I forget that, and I live as a person of the earth? You see? Second, satisfy us with your steadfast love and make us glad. You know, you know the purpose for God creating you? To give you gladness. He wants you glad. He doesn't want you miserable. Satisfy us with what? Chocolate? Big piles of money? Power! Right? No. Satisfy us with your steadfast love. We, we talked about this last week. His hesed love. His covenantal promise, obligation to love us and to rescue us. You can only be satisfied with the pledge of God's love for you. Your human heart is desperate for that. It's so desperate for it that we've, we've tricked ourselves into thinking that we can satisfy it with something else, with a romantic relationship or with marriage or children or, or career. Oh, but friends, satisfy. Be satisfied with the, the, the steadfast love and be glad because of who God is and what he's done for you. That's your purpose, to be satisfied in the love of God, to be glad in his promise to rescue and love you. Third, let your work be manifest to your servant. That's the third prayer. Help us to see that everything around us is not arbitrary or outside of God's control. That despite our mortality and dysfunction, we need to see the invisible hand of God. And if you try to figure out the world simply from the perspective of your 80 years, you're never going to see it. You've got to look through God's eyes. And the fourth prayer, establish the work of our hands. Isn't this great news? In other words, redeem the work of our hands. 
we're just a small drop in, um, in the bucket of the ocean of existence. But our lives still matter. Teach us and establish the work of our hands. That means that your contribution to God's people and to God's world matters. And it's important. And you might not see it. You might not see the significance of it. You might not see the fruit of it, but it matters. Establish the work of our hands. Take our few fish and our few loaves and multiply them. That's what God does. Oh, friends, I hope as I close that you can see the the magnificent purpose wrapped up in Jesus himself. We look to Christ now. Christ existed. He was the God who created the mountains and the seas, existed before we did, independent and timeless. He's the good God we refer to. But he became a mortal man. He took on sin, took on death and all its pains, and he prayed to the Father for wisdom, that he would be satisfied with the Father's love, useful to him, right? And that his work would be established. So in Christ, we see the purpose of ourselves. That though we're mortal, that God would use us to establish his work in our worlds. I hope that you see that this morning. I hope that you ask God to know him and to be satisfied by him and to live with him, to receive his joy. I hope that this morning you could start living for something outside of yourself so that everything in you can be redeemed and transformed and established as the work of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful church, this beautiful gathering of God's people. Oh God, I thank you, Lord. We are limited in so many ways. Um, we, we, we confess we're Um, I know, God, even I look at myself, I know I'm not the best preacher in the world. I'm not the the best leader. But, God, you're the God who makes the mountains and the seas and establishes our work. You're the one who gives us our lives meaning and fills it with purpose. So I pray, Lord, that we would seek you, and in our seeking, that we would find you and also find us. Just bless us now. If there's anyone here that doesn't know,